Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and deep breath, the U.S. men's national team is going to the World Cup. With me tonight to talk about the USA's successful loss to Costa Rica in Costa Rica is a man (laughs) who will be watching the U.S. at the World Cup because they qualified. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, how are you feeling, buddy? I'm feeling good, Taylor. That's a clever turn of phrase from you, successful loss. That's exactly what it was. The U.S. just Mm -hmm. had to not lose by six, and they didn't lose by six. And Taylor Rockwell, (laughs) they are going, as you said, to the World Cup. So let's start there for a moment. I watched some of the CBS postgame show, and it did a pretty good job of encapsulating how I was feeling, which is like, yay, we went, but we lost. And it kind of feels anticlimactic, but it's great we're going. Joe, my, my assumption, or at least my... My sort of operating assumption based on your initial messages trying to cheer me up were that you are feeling more optimistic. You're feeling better about this result. I am. It is a weird emotional conflict, Mm -hmm. though, right? And I think Christian Pulisic actually captured this really well Mm. after the game in his interview with Jenny Chu. He said, I'm extremely proud. I'm extremely proud of this group. It's a bit weird of a feeling right now because I hate to lose so much. But I'm really proud and I can't wait to go to the World Cup. I think that is is the perfect quote for that moment because it it really was a weird thing to see the ref blow the final whistle and knowing that the U.S. was officially now going to the World Cup, but also that understandable disappointment from a group of professional athletes that are are paid to win, number one, but just love to win. Otherwise, they wouldn't be professional athletes. So it's a weird mixture of things, but I can't help but feel like for me that, man, this is a really cool moment. It's been nine years since the U.S. clinched a qualification, clinched qualification to the World Cup, and this is my first ever time looking ahead to covering a World Cup. So my heart was racing after this game. I was excited. I still am excited. I'm, I'm buzzing for this team. It wasn't perfect tonight. There are issues, and, and we can talk about that stuff later. Yep. It hasn't been perfect under Greg Berhalter, and we've talked about that stuff before, and maybe we'll talk about that later or down the road as well as we approach Qatar. But man, what a cool moment for these players. A really young group, and Greg Berhalter made sure to emphasize that after the match. An incredibly young group, missing key players for this window. They came out and got two huge results earlier on in this window. A great performance against Mexico, a decent enough performance, and a huge result against Panama at home in the biggest game of Greg Berhalter's tenure. And they got the job done tonight. I I just can't find it in my heart to be terribly upset about anything at the moment. Joe, you you have run through it all quite expertly. I'm going to back it up for a moment to say that I agree with you entirely. There is going to be time to discuss some of the concerns we have about this team that are existing, some of the concerns that maybe popped up after this result, maybe slightly more limited than the long-term concerns, but we will be able to be concerned about those things because we'll be preparing for a World Cup, and that is ultimately where I would like to be. And a thing that you said there that I think is very important to consider the context of this game is, like, Bells put out that song about, like, four-point window. <laughs> yeah. Like, we needed four points from this window. A banger. And... I felt, historically speaking, like it was more realistic, especially given the way things were kind of shaping up, to get a point on the road in Mexico than a point on the road in Costa Rica. We've only done it, I think, as they said in the pre-match broadcast, like once we've gotten a draw, maybe, no, we got a draw in the 80s, and I think that's it. We don't get points on the road. And so I think this window was about get the draw in Mexico, get the win against Panama, and then we have the luxury, ideally, of not having to go out and win that game in Costa Rica. And I think that's what this game was for me, was a first half where the U.S. played the strongest possible team to try to get the result, to try to get the win. But then the changes that are made at halftime with Tyler Adams coming off, the kind of pre-planned changes in the 60th minute or thereabouts, that all felt to me like the U.S. win it at halftime, and their goal was to not have any major injuries, not concede six goals, obviously, but finish the game qualifying for the World Cup, come what may. I think Costa Rica went into the locker room and 
found solutions for how to play through the United States and found a way to win the game. And in that context, I see it as Costa Rica trying desperately to win this particular game and the United States trying to keep everything sort of everybody healthy, everything moving, moving solidly towards the World Cup. And ultimately, that's where we are. So a disappointing moment, I think. But I, again, I would much rather be in this position than where we were in 2017 in Trinidad. That is I would say, yeah, without a doubt, the worst day in my soccer fandom. I struggle to think of another time I was that. Just like, I don't know what to do. I don't want to watch soccer anymore. I don't want to talk about it anymore. This is terrible. And Daryl Grove, the ever-present like source of happiness and enthusiasm, also silently holding his head in his hands and staring mm. at the floor. And I thought about him a lot today, about how happy he would be with this team, with these young players coming through, with Greg Berhalter finding a way to get this team to mostly gel, mostly get the results that are needed. It feels like they are continuing to build, and ultimately they're building towards going to a World Cup, which is the thing that they weren't doing four years ago. So I get being frustrated by the results. I get some people are going to have major questions to be asked. But right now, Joe, I'm just feeling very optimistic and thankful that we have the U.S. in a World Cup again. And Taylor, to put on our Daryl hat for a second, mm-hmm. like how many, how many positives are there to take here? There's so many about this group and about this team, right? You think about the players, number one, the U.S. are missing this window and they still get the job done. No Weston McKinney, who I think we can pretty much all agree has cemented himself as a really yeah. a top two most important player for the U.S. at this point. Tyler Adams probably being the other there. No Weston McKinney involved in this window and they got the job done. No Sergio Dest. Easily the most skillful defender the U.S. has, a game-changing player in the right situations. He's not involved in this window. No Brendan Aronson, who's proven himself to be an important, if not you know absolutely necessary kind of player, but he certainly would have gotten minutes in this window. And, and you, you're missing all of those guys. No Matt Turner. You're missing key players in this window, and the U.S. get the job done in the most important stretch of games that Great Barathers has ever coached with the national team. None of those guys are involved, and you still manage to do the job. That's huge. And you also think about, Taylor, the number of players in this lineup who weren't involved Mm -hmm. last time around, right? I mean, the only two players that played any part really in in that meaningful meaningful games in that last cycle, you're looking at Christian Pulisic and you're looking at Kellen Acosta, I guess, three kind of, and, and DeAndre Yedlin. That's it. Like the other eight players in this lineup, and, and you can even zero in further on some of the younger guys, Ricardo Pepe and Tim Weah, Yunus Musa, Tyler Adams. I mean, these players just weren't involved. It's Tyler Adams getting his first call up to the U.S. in that meaningless game in Portugal. Well, we're still kind of rubbing our eyes trying to figure out what on earth just happened. And Tyler Adams goes out and our Dave Sarikin is playing as a right-sided midfielder yeah. in, a, in a weird, just a weird experience in a beautiful stadium, I might add, but just a bizarre situation. <laughs> All of these things are realities that the U.S. is facing. And, I, and again, I don't want to just lose complete sight of the fact that this is not a perfect team and the U.S. like aren't favorites to win the World Cup at all. And I don't want anything I say to make it sound like that. But, man, to have, to have taken this team to the World Cup, to have gotten them to the World Cup, it is a job. The U.S. did that job. They were probably favorites to do that all along, and, and they did it. And I, I just can't be mad at the fact that the U.S. did the thing they needed to do. So we will talk about some things that happened in this game, some positive, some negative. We're going to look ahead to maybe try to build a World Cup uh, starting 11, if not an entire roster. But Joe, first, I just wanted to say I appreciate your bringing the positivity uh, because that is what you've, you've been doing. You bring the positivity. You help keep this show going. You helped keep the show going with just you and Ryan Bailey when I was on paternity leave. And now here we are. It's been a couple years, but you've been through it, man. You've been through qualifying. You've been analyzing these games. You've been up late. You've been up early. Uh, I, I just want to thank you, Joe, and I'm sure listeners would as well. And I should thank the listeners for sticking with us and, and kind of following along and giving us their feedback and being there to support us and to support the U.S. And it's just a good feeling to know that the U.S. will be in the World Cup and quietly it's also a good feeling to know that this result did not cost us our seating. <laughs> Joe, we had talked about this before. The U.S. goes into pot two. We know that now for sure, yes. which means they avoid some major threats in the draw. And speaking of that draw, Joe, we are going to be discussing it on Friday. Is that correct? Dang right we are. It's going to be mm-hmm. you, me, and Graham Ruffin live in the Bleacher Report app 
as that draw happens. So we're going to be going live at 12.30 p.m. Eastern into 1.30 p.m. Eastern. So it'll be that hour block. We're going to be reacting live to the draw. We'll certainly spend some some good time there focusing in on the U.S.'s group as it shapes. We're going to be talking about maybe is there is there any sort of group of death, although with how FIFA does the pot system now, it doesn't feel like that's nearly as likely. But you know, what do the different groups look like? What is this tournament shaping up to look like at all? It's coming quickly, and so we're all really excited to be taking part in to, to be doing that show. Again, Bleach Report app, 12.30 p.m. Eastern to 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Be there or, or, or be square. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking about all that we're planning to cover in that hour with how many teams are going to be involved, uh, the length of the draw, then analyzing the groups, it makes me look at this game, Joe, even more and be like, there's not a ton to talk about from this one, at least from the first half. I've definitely got some notes. I know you do as well. Uh, Let's start with the starting point, the lineups. That makes sense, right? Let's start with that starting 11 for a moment. How surprised were you to see that it was more or less a full-strength starting 11? I was really surprised, Taylor. I did not think that Greg Peralta would run out his guys. Again, it's the exact same lineup as the U.S. played against Mexico at the Azteca less than a week ago now. Zach Steffen in goal, Walker Zimmerman and Miles Robinson as the center backs, DeAndre Edlin and Jedi as the two fullbacks, Tyler Adams at the six with Acosta and Musa as the two number eights, Tim Way on the right, Christian Pulisic on the left, and Ricardo Pepe up top as the nine. I, I did not think we would see this same group. Six players after this game took place. Zimmerman, Robinson, Miles, and, and Anthony, Musa, Adams, and Pulisic played all three games. They started all three games in this window, and Baralter just rolled them out. He, he apparently wasn't too concerned about running their, running their legs into the ground, which I, I think might have been a mistake in terms of trying to actually go out and win this game. But as we covered earlier, the U.S. didn't necessarily need to win this game. I don't know. I, I don't know exactly where I stand on this lineup choice from Greg Baralter. I don't know that I would have made it, but I also don't know the things that he knows. It felt weird a bit in a game that didn't matter a whole lot to do that, but he was trying to establish some sort of statement of intent by running out his best 11 in his mind, and, and maybe that was accomplished. I'm not sure, Taylor. Hmm. Do, would it make any difference for you then if there were more of a reserve 11 that played this game, the U.S. lost 2-0 or 3-0 in kind of the same fashion? Would you feel better, worse, or about the same because ultimately we're going to the World Cup, who cares? I think I'd feel about the same. The, okay. the thing is, Taylor, I think if it's a reserve lineup in this game, we probably don't see the U.S. Well, I don't know. I guess the goals came from set pieces, but I'm not sure we see the U.S. at least play in this fashion because I think the first half, Taylor, you and I texted about this at halftime, was actually pretty decent. Like, there were there were good moments. Costa Rica didn't create anything, really, in open play. They didn't have any chances at all. Kaylor Navas makes a couple of saves, and, and the U.S. are in a decent spot after that first 45. Very winnable game for them, or at least to, to hang in there and get that point. They were in control in that first half. The second half starts, and, and you can see maybe some of the energy wearing off. The U.S. gives away two goals on set pieces, which we can talk about later. But then after those, there was really never any push to get back into this game. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and maybe things would have played out differently in that second half. I think the U.S. certainly would have had more energy if different players were involved in this game. But again, that's not how Berlter chose to play it, and, and it ended up turning out okay. I think that's a pretty good summary for the overall game, Joe. Let's take a quick break, then let's get back and let's talk about that first half versus the second half, and then what comes next. Back soon. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back. And Joe, I got to say, I, I feel increasingly better about things as we talk more. And maybe it's just talking to you. Maybe it's just your, your, your peppy enthusiasm and, and vigor and youth. That's definitely what it is. <laughs> but it's also the fact that I really uh, enjoy breaking these games down with you. It's super fun. It's the reason why I take like diligent notes and, and want to rewatch and know all these things. Because you bring your own knowledge. You bring your own enthusiasm. And it's just fun to figure things out and learn about this team and kind of identify how they solved problems or how they managed to get a goal or what adjustments were made. And it's it's like just kind of dawning on me that we get to do that at a World Cup again. And the feeling that Italian fans must have about like, yeah, it's going to be a World Cup, but we're not going to be there again. And this is really frustrating again. It's just nice that we will get to continue to analyze this team and talk about how they evolve and change as we build up to the World Cup. And then we get to talk about them at the World Cup. But that aside... For right now, let's talk about the first half. And Joe, I think you said it pretty well. It was a mostly decent first half in the United States, and I would say it was a very physical first half from Costa Rica. Fouls on both sides for sure, but it did seem like there was a bit of targeting going on from Costa Rica, uh, especially with uh, Chacon on Pulisic. We saw that in the first half. We saw that in the second half. We did not see a ton of cards, and I sort of felt like the referee let a lot of things go, and even at times when it seemed like there was going to be a definite yellow, it was instead a, I'm not even going to say a very stern talking to. It was like a half stern talking to, and I don't think that really cemented the authority or stamped out any of the kind of physicality and the rough challenges that were happening. I think the ref was just sort of hoping that we could all make it through this game without too much going on, (laughs) which is kind of what it felt like was going to happen in the build-up to this game at all, right? I mean, it was a packed crowd in the stadium in Costa Rica and San Jose, but even before the game, the reports from Costa Rica were that it was a pretty relaxed atmosphere among fans there. You know, those people sort of congratulating the U.S. and U.S. fans on making it and resigning themselves to the playoff, which was always the most likely outcome, and that's exactly what happened from this game. But it did have that, this first half tail did have that chippiness that you're talking about. There was certainly elements of that throughout this game, and, and not even just in the first half. So that was a, a, certainly a theme of the, of the first 45. The U.S. controlling possession, they had a 60-40 possession advantage at the half. That was a big theme. Costa Rica sat in a pretty narrow and at times deep 4-4-2 block. They pushed forward and at times would rotate a bit in possession. But that was mostly how they defended, and they tried to push the U.S. out wide. And the U.S., for the most part, uh, no, I don't want to say for the most part. They had a, a number of nice-looking attacking builds in those areas. It wasn't as crisp as it needed to be, but uh, Yedlin and Timwea had some nice moves on that right side, especially the U.S. was pretty right-sided dominant in that first half. They needed a little more in terms of finding that final pass to then play the cutback across goal or, or just simply that cutback being played at all. They needed more of that, but, I mean, there were chances on set pieces. Miles Robinson had a couple of looks. He hits a shot on a laser at Keylor Navas in that eighth minute, I believe it is. It is a ridiculous shot from him, so hard. And Navas saves it. He doesn't have to move a whole lot, but he makes a big save. Pepe's got a shot, and he really should have played Pulisic the ball. I know Charlie Davies talked about at halftime how he's a striker and he's looking to score goals, but 
as a striker, your job is to help your team score goals just like it is everybody else's job. And the the, the right play in that sequence is, is passing to Pulisic, and that doesn't happen. But it's a good look for the U.S. They have a number of those in the first half. They weren't great, but they were fine, and they were certainly the better team, I believe, in that first 45. And I think it's worth noting as well that this is a heavily rotated Costa Rica yes. side. And on the surface, that means, oh, they're not playing any of their veterans. They're going to kind of be there for the taking. It's a bunch of inexperienced players coming in. And that was my thinking. I thought maybe that would make things easier. Uh, Moledu was talking about this in the postgame and basically saying it's a lot harder to play a B team than people might realize because with the A team, you know what to expect. You've played against them before, but you sort of also know the physicality and you know that you're going to get some knocks here, but you know how they're going to play a bit more. When you're playing against younger players who have a point to prove, who are trying to come in and beat the United States and potentially, like, in a miracle, get their team to the World Cup automatically, there's just a different level of commitment. There's a different work rate that was there. And U.S. fans might not love that because I think we always want to believe that we're going to outwork anybody. But that really wasn't the case for me. And I think it wasn't for lack of trying because the other hallmark to me of this first half was really aggressive reads. And we talked about this. You and I did in a text exchange. I tweeted about it. Tyler Adams has that close down in the second minute that maybe covers 25 yards in like two seconds to uh, to snuff out a potential counterattack. Anthony Robinson has two great reads to win the ball and carry it forward and launch counterattacks. Walker Zimmerman has plenty as well. And it felt like it was a a very feisty, motivated Costa Rica team and an equally feisty U.S. team in that first half. And that's where some of those challenges, I think, almost boiled over, but didn't quite. Um, and, I, and I did find it a pretty compelling game. I also thought the U.S. did some smart things in that one, uh, in the first half at least. Like, I saw Kellen Acosta and Tyler Adams doing more of the sort of dropping into the fullback spot when Yedlin and Robinson would push pretty far forward. That pushed the wingers inside, so then you had numbers around Ricardo Pepe. There were still those sort of gaps between the lines that I don't love, maybe maybe with a bit more familiarity with some of the players, those those just get tightened up. But I saw smart approaches because you send those guys wide, you don't let Costa Rica counter uh, down the channels, you kind of funnel them central where you theoretically have more numbers. And I think the U.S. was doing a good job to prevent the counter, uh, keep possession, fight for loose balls, win those loose balls, and create chances. Uh, and that's where I was feeling pretty okay about the first half. I was, I was with you on that one, Joe. I think I'm I'm higher on this game than a lot of folks are. I'm I'm higher on the U.S.'s performance in this game than a lot mm. of folks out there are, at least based off of Twitter, which is probably the worst thing to base this off of. <laughs> but, Taylor, something you said there stood out to me, that the fact that Adams and Acosta, and I would add Musa to this as well, were dropping yep. into the fullback mm-hmm. spots. It was a really defined 2-3-5 shape from the U.S. in possession, which is something they play out of all the time. But this, this specific positioning changes depending on the game. And this is positioning we'd seen before in large part. So it was the two center backs as the two in the 2-3-5. It was Adams as the six with Musa and Acosta to either side of him as the three. And then the five was the fullbacks pushing high, the wingers inside, and, and Pepe as the nine. You detailed all that very well. For me in this game, it felt like there was far too big of a divide, especially in the second half. His legs got tired and, and the U.S. really just didn't need to push all that much anymore. And even Costa Rica, it felt like was time-wasting a bit. As the U.S. progressed in this game, or as the game progressed, it felt like there was a big divide between the U.S.'s back five, that 2-3, and then the actual front five. Like, the, the, the center mids would pull so deep and wide that there was this giant divide between those two sets of players, the build-up group or, or the deeper possession group and that front attacking group that was really wide across the field. I don't think the U.S. did a very good job, and maybe part of this falls on the wingers, Christian Pulisic and Tim Weah, of not showing as as much in the pockets. Uh, maybe it's on a lack of ball progression from the, the deeper group, so that, that five in the back, the two center backs and the three center midfielders. Musa, Costin, Adams aren't really ball progressors, and neither are Miles Robinson and Zimmerman. So I'm not sure that this group really fits all that well in a high-possession team, which has been a, a weird kind of trend of the Peralter era in general. But that was one thing that stood out to me in this game that I wasn't a huge fan of, and we've seen this before. In the last window, Taylor, January, February, we talked about how in the first two games, El Salvador and then Canada, the U.S. used a pretty similar alignment with the two eights dropping into the fullback holes. And it's happened a lot, and it works sometimes, but it is sort of a trend, I believe, of the U.S. having possession with that positional alignment and not creating as many chances in open play as you'd like them to. I mentioned they did create in the first half, and that's true. A lot of the chances, though, outside of those wide progressions and combinations, 
did come from set pieces. So that's just sort of an observation from me as we head into Nations League in June. And in the draw for that, I believe, is next week. So we'll learn more about how that's going to go on. But as the U.S. gets some more games in the 200 or some odd days they have before the World Cup, I do think it'll be interesting to watch how they continue to refine their possession play. I think that's a great point, Joe, because I also think the inability to really dominate in possession and and just kind of keep the ball, move it around, find players in open space, close some of those gaps, it has a couple different effects. One would be that you don't have the United States getting the kind of consistency and fluidity in their possession so that they keep building towards a goal and product, which would be ideal. But it's also the case that if you start to get stretched out like that, we've seen this time and time again with the United States, They tend to be a little bit more direct or sort of trying to force balls into the channels, trying to force things to make something happen. And again, you're giving up the ball there. But it also means that if you're giving up the ball and you're stretched or you've got gaps between the lines, you have to work that much harder to get back into the kind of compact shape you need to then defend the way you want to, ideally counter-pressing or uh, putting certain players under pressure to have the pressing triggers, whatever it might be. You can't do that until everybody's back where they need to be. And if you're stretched and spaced out... It's that much more effort. It's that much more energy. And so as we move into the second half, I I do think some of it was, I think, Tyler Adams. I think he is just that important. But I think a larger point would be because you're right that some of that spacing and some of the kind of breakdowns were already happening with Tyler Adams on the pitch. I think some of it was just fatigue. And you see players making little mistakes uh, in the lead up to the first goal, which we're getting to. Uh, There's the U.S. kind of working it around, swinging it around, swinging it around. And I think it's a ball from Zimmerman out wide to DeAndre Yedlin on the touchline. It's it's like a good, it's a driven ball. It's probably 30 or 40 yards, but it's from like, you know, the right center wide part of the pitch, the half space. There it is. That's the more succinct way of saying it. <laughs> uh, out wide to DeAndre Yedlin, and Yedlin just lifts his foot, and it goes underneath. Yep. And that might just seem like a dumb mistake, but to me, that's a mistake that happens when you're tired and you're raising your foot too much because you have to kind of put that extra effort into raising the foot to receive the ball. And that just starts happening more and more as the game goes on. That gets back to the kind of original conversation we were having in the intro about how this team really did feel like they were structured to get results in those first two games. And then whatever's left over, we'll throw onto the pitch against Costa Rica. And as the second half kicks off and kind of goes in those first 10 minutes, I just saw that sloppiness. I saw heavy touches. I saw misplaced passes that shouldn't have been played. I think for the second goal, uh, there's a throw-in that leads to a foul, that leads to a free kick, that leads to a chaos, that leads to a goal. That throw-in happens because Kellen Acosta yep. just tries to play a ball in my to notes. both Yunus Musa and Timothy Weah simultaneously and splits the difference and it goes out of bounds and Weah turns around and, and screams at him immediately and justifiably so because that's just a pass that should have been completed, should have been connected, but I'm going to assume there was a little bit of miscommunication between the two players trying to receive it and then it was just a poorly hit ball and I think those mistakes started to add up as the game went on. And that's, Taylor, your point about fatigue is, is something I didn't understand or that relates to something I didn't understand about this lineup is you have a bunch of guys who have played all the games, who started every single game, six of those players. But a bunch of the players you just mentioned in that sequence even didn't play against Panama and were still sloppy. Yedlin had a a few of those moments. Acosta, you're absolutely right to pinpoint that pass out of balance. That's a part of the second goal sequence for Costa Rica. Wea was bright in moments, but but not all that good in other moments. And then you got Pepe, who I don't think had a ton of really sloppy moments, but he's not as, as deep and as involved in the play. So even the guys that weren't as involved in that Panama game, I thought weren't all that good at times in this game. Then you add in the tired legs. Adams, he also deals with a little knock after the first few minutes and he's still good playing. Mm-hmm. But his quad appears to be or appeared to be not at full capacity, not at full operational ability. <laughs> so you have him and, and Musa looks dead tired in the second mm-hmm. half. So there's a lot of these moments with with players that have played in all three games and also players that haven't started all three games. And so that's why I was thinking maybe we do see more rotation. At that point, it's it's maybe those those mistakes from Acosta in the buildup or from Yedlin in the buildup to Costa Rica's goals don't matter as much because maybe you've been able to keep the ball or be a bit more effective with fresh legs in other positions. So I don't know. And it, it, none of it really matters at this point anyway, I don't think, uh, at least for the sake of this World Cup qualification campaign. But I think it is interesting to note that the U.S. looked gassed, and, and maybe that wouldn't have been the case with a different lineup pick. And for me, at least, but I'll go ahead and speak for for you, Joe, for both of us. There you go, Joe. Now you're lumped in, uh, come what may. I, I don't think that we're having this conversation. Some people might hear it as like, oh, you're just defending them. Uh, you're, you're giving them excuses. You're giving them outs. Berhalter still should have rotated. Whatever. If you want to feel that way, you can. I think 
I'm drawing a distinction because it makes what happened in those opening 15 minutes or so make a lot more sense. Because my assumption, uh, I think based on emotion watching it live, is that the U.S. just came out complacent and thought, we're going to the World Cup, you're not going to score six goals, whatever, we got this. And Costa Rica came out motivated, blitzed them, and made something happen, and then the U.S. kind of scrambled for the rest of the game. And that, on the rewatch, is not what happened. Yeah. The U.S. comes out. And, like, I think the first thing that happens is Yedlin jumps over uh, Aguilera and fouls <laughs> yeah. him. Like, he leaps over him. Like, they are fighting for every single ball. They're working for everything. But I think when you have those differing levels of fatigue and maybe uh, maybe Timothy Weah, who didn't play that last game, is now at, like, 65% because of the intensity. But another player who did is at 45%. It's just that much harder to execute. And so I think some of the discipline goes in those moments, and that's where you have to rely on luck to some extent. But also you have to make your own luck, and you have to continue to work as hard as you can, but maybe drop off a little bit, sit in a little bit more. And I think the U.S. just got caught out and caught out by set pieces, but I don't think it was complacency. And that makes a huge difference to me because the team that comes out and is just like, whatever, you're welcome, we're here, is not a team that I feel comfortable cheering for because I don't love that idea. But a team that comes out and is like, we are exhausted, but we will keep fighting and do everything that we can – and even if we don't end up getting the result we we like ideally would have gotten, we're still qualified for the World Cup. I have a harder time being truly upset about that. Taylor, you mentioned DeAndre Yedlin jumping over Aguilera. Can <laughs> we did. talk about Brendan Aguilera for just a minute? He he yes. was legit. He is a, he is a very talented young player. Eighteen years old, plays oh, for yes. Guanacasteca in Costa Rica. First ever cap for him for Costa Rica. He's skillful. He was involved in both of these goals, taking the set pieces that lead to both of Costa Rica's goals. Really nice delivery. I mean, he is a, a real talent. Left foot, super strong. I like so much of what I saw from him, and, and even some of these other young Costa Rican players. Credit to Costa Rica for the run of form they've been on to even get up to this fourth place spot because that was not a guarantee for them in qualifying after what Panama was doing. Credit to them for getting in this spot, and, and there are some bright spots from from them in terms of these younger players involved in this game and involved in the two goals that they scored. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a huge part of this, as we, as I said earlier, is young players coming in with a point to prove. I mean, Chacon, for example, is all over the place with Pulisic tracking him everywhere. This was his first cap. He's 20 years old. Uh, Benete, uh, or Benet out wide, uh, also, uh, I think he has three caps. He's 17 years old. Like, this is an incredibly young team to come out and they come out hungry, and they're able to get this win. And it definitely, I was starting to feel somewhat optimistic about our future playing Costa Rica, Joe. It's like, ah, oh, there's a bunch of 30-year-olds. <laughs> like, it's, it's the Chile thing. Like, we don't know what the next generation is going to do. And now I see the next generation, and I have concerns. So, again, credit to Costa Rica, maybe less so the U.S. for that second-half performance. And, Joe, there's maybe a few individuals we have to continue to talk about when it comes to the way the U.S. conceded or what happened in that second half. Yeah, that was just a long way of saying Zach Stefan. Uh, I much. like it. I like it, though, Taylor. Uh, so I'll go ahead and walk us through at least this first goal here from Costa Rica. So we kind of talked about the buildup. Taylor, you walked us through that. But in terms of the actual direct sequence, so it's a corner kick. It's an outswinger from Aguilera. And Vargas arrives and heads it home right in front of Walker Zimmerman. The U.S. is in a mix of a zonal and, and man-marking structure, or at least they have a, a zonal line across a six-yard box. And they have a few players who I can't tell if they're man-marking or if they're just acting as blockers. Oh, Kellen Acosta is man-marking. Okay, okay. So they're man-marking. <laughs> He's literally holding his shirt when, when the ball is kicked. And Acosta gets beaten by Vargas pretty badly. Yes, so there's, there's plenty of blame for him on this sequence, certainly. And, and I don't think Acosta had the best game. But okay. Aguilera uh, has that... Shoot, sorry, not Aguilera, it's, it's, it's Vargas, excuse me. He climbs in front of Acosta and then heads the ball before Zimmerman can, can fully engage in that play. It's poor set-piece defending from the U.S. before the shot is taken, but it's also poor goalkeeping from Zach Seven after the shot is taken. We talked about this All a right. little bit before right. uh, we started recording, Taylor, and Stefan, one, his feet aren't set, two, his hands aren't ready, and three, he's really slow to react, which is because of, one, his feet aren't set, right? I mean, it's a terrible, it's a vicious cycle for Zach Stefan in that moment, and we keep coming back to this, or I will, and I, I'm not going to let it die, this idea that Zach Steffen shot-stopping isn't good enough, or at least isn't as good as the U.S. could have in that position. And of course, Matt Turner's injured, so I'm not saying you should have started an injured Matt Turner over Zach Steffen. But if we're looking for future takeaways, I'm going to keep banging the drum. I've been banging for a while now. I don't know that Zach Steffen 
is the goalkeeper that's going to take the U.S. to any real success in Qatar. He's not going to let every shot by him or anything like that. But percentage-wise, I think you will always feel more comfortable or you will always be better off with shots coming at Matt Turner than you will be with Zach Steffen. So I am not quite on the same level of the Matt Turner bandwagon as you are. I still feel like there's a chance we have Zach Steffen as our starter. But, Joe, I think you've done a good job of highlighting the kind of three individual errors that culminate in Stefan being unable to make a play. But I was wondering if you could maybe slowly break those down a little bit more for people who are new to the game or haven't seen sure. that goal. I think you said, what, feet aren't set, hands aren't ready, reaction too slow? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. So as a goalkeeper, if you're in that position and you're preparing for a shot to be taken on goal, which is certainly something that Stefan should have been doing in his mind at that point, given what's happening right in front of his eyes. So as you're preparing for a shot to come at you, You want to make sure that your feet are ready to jump off the ground to make that save. You don't want to be caught flat-footed. You hear that term all the time in in soccer broadcasts. You don't want to be caught flat-footed so that you can actually react, so that you can jump and move to make that save. Because in all likelihood, the ball isn't going to be coming directly at you. So Zach Steffen, his feet are flat, which means in order for him to jump, he has to then actually get up off his feet, plant his feet again, and really move to get any sort of momentum on that jump. So his feet aren't set. They're not ready to actually go and make a play. His hands aren't in a position to stop the ball. And I, I'm honestly not, as, not quite as worried about that as I am about his feet in that moment. But his hands are closer to his sides than they are up and ready to actually make a, a shot-stopping play. So that's the second issue. And it's a pretty logical one in that sequence. And third, because, again, really because of the, the foot thing that I mentioned, he's slow to react. He sees the ball, and I, I just think he doesn't get off the ground quick enough and he's not making a play on that ball. So I, I think that's my yeah. way of breaking down and clarifying the importance of those three items. And I think that's a very good thing to clarify and break down because I you you told me that, Joe, you, like when we were texting back and forth. You're like, yeah, I think he could have done better on the first one. And I watched it and just like, man, that's like a, a towering header. Acosta could have done better. The marking could have been better. They could have not conceded the corner in the first place. But I don't know if I can fault Zach Steffen for not saving this like bullet header from six to eight yards out. And then when you break it down like that and you watch it some more, you do see him sort of standing on the feet. You do see him with the hands down watching what's happening. And he doesn't have that the like cat-like alertness that, say, Kaylor Navas had throughout yeah. this game. And, and so that does stand out to me a little bit more as a result. I am definitely more concerned, though, about the way the second goal was conceded from a Zach Steffen perspective. But we're going to take a break. We're going to tease that one, and we'll be right back with the final part of today's show. All right, Joe Lowry, in part three, we pick up where we left off in part two by talking about Zach Steffen conceding goals. And I'm going to say this second one is a problem. Yeah, he's flapping at this one. So it's the 60th minute. It's Costa Rica's second goal. Contreras scores. Huge moment. Crowd's going wild, I should mention. The, the, The bench for Costa Rica is also going wild, and you can't help but feel a little happy for them. In this case, U.S. fans can afford to feel happy because they have plenty of things to be happy about themselves. It's, it's a set piece from Aguilera. Again, I'm a big fan of him after this game. And Stefan comes out to catch, and he doesn't catch, which was deja vu from the Panama game and, and deja vu for Stefan at Manchester City at times and earlier on in his U.S. tenure as well. There's been times in the Nations League this past summer, I guess that would be 2021, and, and other moments from him in a U.S. shirt where he flaps at crosses. It's a real issue for him. So he comes out to, to try and catch this ball, and he, he doesn't do that. It goes through his hands, and he blocks one shot while he's way out of his goal trying to recover. And he goes back to goal, and I don't think there's much he could do at that point to really stop the ball that's coming into the back post or the tap-in in that, that particular sequence, the shot in, in the back post area. But really, that play should have been eliminated from Costa Rica before they were able to play the ball in for the goal. So not, not the set piece, but really the, the secondary action inside the box from them, or even the, the third action at this point, because they've already had a shot that Stefan blocks. But again, he shouldn't have even had to do that in the first place. Taylor, I don't think, and you're welcome to disagree with me on this, I don't think he needs to come out and try to claim the ball at all in this sequence. I think part of the reason he doesn't catch the ball is because he has to climb over Jedi Robinson to get the ball in the first place. I think the ball was too far away from him on his line. He had players in that area, even if Jedi Robinson doesn't win that ball or if the U.S. don't head it away. Stefan should theoretically have time to plant his feet, push off, get momentum to stop a shot. There was a lot on that play that I felt like went wrong from Stefan, which was a a theme from this game. 
not saying you're saying this, but it is an interesting parallel to draw with the idea that he's kind of rooted on his line for the first one and maybe determined not to be for the second one. But perhaps that is too much like psychoanalysis. What I will say, Joe, I don't know if I fully agree that he doesn't need to come for this the way he does. What I do agree with is that trying to catch it makes absolutely no sense. Mm. If you're going to come for that one in traffic with numbers around you, punch that ball clear. Because... Short of, like, the FIFA video game, where if the goalkeeper has it in his hands, he is never dropping the ball. Like, it's going to be so difficult to hold on to that one. Not just because you're running through uh, Jedi Robinson, but because there's other bodies in the way. And you're going to have to come down, you're going to have to navigate that. It's going to be a scrum. Maybe you end up drawing a foul, but punch that ball away, and then it is clear. Because the thing that then happens is he spills it. He realizes he has to try to make a play. Contreras hits the volley. Stefan gets a body part to it, but now Stefan is, what, 15 yards from his own goal? So he's trying to scramble back. The ball kind of deflects wide, and now the U.S. is having to, to scramble because it's a deflected shot. It's not just a ball. It's been punched clear, and they can get their shape. And then they're scrambling to try to figure out what to do, and that's where Contreras picks himself up and gets on the end of the kind of shot that goes straight into the ground from Lawrence, and he's there to finish it, and it's 2-0. And I think one way or the other, Zach Steffen did not need to do what he did, and combining that with the other sort of flaps that you've mentioned, it opens up that conversation all the more that maybe it is going to be an open conversation about who is going to be the starting goalkeeper between Turner and Steffen, and maybe Ethan Horvath, but probably not. Probably just between Turner and Steffen. (laughs) But it, it's one of those performances where I think if he keeps a clean sheet and is dominant in goal, I, I'm inclined to think that we kind of know who the number one is. And I was feeling like we knew who the number one is heading into this game. And once again, I am, uh, it's a murkier picture than I thought it would be. I feel like we've been having similar discussions yep. for a while now. Like mm-hmm. Turner and Stefan are in camp together. Turner Turner was starting for a while when Stefan was injured. I guess I should start there and when mm-hmm. he wasn't available with, with a few different things factoring into that. So Turner's starting, and he had a lot of good moments for the U.S. wasn't flawless, but but had some good moments. Stefan comes back in and, and reclaims that starting job. And in my head, that's always a big risk from Greg Berhalter. I think you you got to value shot-stopping in those moments over distribution. And we talked about this just a, a few days ago, Taylor. Like, Zach Steffen's distribution for me isn't even always that good. And I'm not trying to come for Zach Steffen here. I, I don't have anything against him. I think he's an excellent soccer player. But I I just don't understand... The idea of starting him over Matt Turner when we see firsthand over and over again, Nations League, earlier in World Cup qualifying, now again, multiple times in this window even, his difficulty claiming crosses and now his shot stopping, it's a problem. And I I feel like sometimes we're tempted to say, oh, well, he had a good game and so maybe those things are gone. But every time that's happened, they haven't been gone. Those issues haven't faded away. So we have no evidence to think that Baralter agrees or cares about any of this. We we don't have anything that, that shows that. So as far as I'm concerned, Taylor, to what you're saying there... Zach Steffen is the U.S.'s number one, but I don't know that I would make that choice. <laughs> That's fair and well said and diplomatically said at that, Joe. Uh, are there other players that you do feel better about? We've kind of talked about a couple, uh, maybe only Zach Steffen with any level of detail, but I'm not sure this game also requires a huge sure. detail and analysis of every single individual performer. So I guess I'm wondering who stood out to you in a good way or a bad way, whichever one you prefer. Yunus Musa kind of bossed the midfield in that first half, didn't he? Yep. He had he had a lot of nice yep. moments. He was combining with Tim Weah in, at times. Seventeenth minute. Oh, this I almost tweeted the sequence Ooh. out, but I, I decided not to. He, uh, yeah, I yes, love sir. how you know exactly what I'm talking about yes, here. Sir. He does such a good job to let the ball roll past him in zone 14, and then drives forward and gets his body in front of a Costa Rican player and draws a foul in a good spot. Calnacasa takes the free kick. Nothing comes of it. But man, that was that was in the the general vicinity, Taylor, of a Musa maneuver. Not nearly as winding or slalom, but half. it has it that half. similar, yeah, it has half of that vibe of him being so skillful on the ball and smooth and his understanding of space once he's driving forward. So good. He has that moment, another drive forward in the 29th minute, but the sloppy pass, which I think is kind of indicative of his, his game. One thing I've learned after watching Yunus Musa, and we've talked about this on Americans Abroad and Americans in Action before, Really good on the ball, get it driving forward, but I think he's too reliant on that dribble and not reliant enough or, or not good enough simply at passing the ball forward and progressing it on on, on with, with passes yeah. as opposed to on the dribble. But man, so much fun Eunice Musa stuff in that first half, a lot less fun Eunice Musa stuff in the second half. Definitely true on that second part. Uh, yeah, I gave him a half Musa maneuver for the good. first one, and then I gave him 
three quarters of a Musa maneuver for the second one of the 29th minute that you mentioned because that pass was so poor. So I guess he has what? 1.25, one like one right? Quarter? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, but that that opening moment, or the, the first one you mentioned, Joe, it's also a really nice sequence. It's the one where he opens up, he dribbles, he draws the foul. But... Like, I went back and watched that one at halftime. That was one of two moments I really spotlighted. It's a Costa Rica throw-in. And I think in a lot of ways, it's the U.S. doing exactly what they need to do to win the ball back high up the pitch and then create an opportunity. It's a throw-in. It's uh, Lawrence to Aguilera. It's Adams on his back, so it has to be this sort of, like, blind flick. DeAndre Edlin is there to win that flick on. He, he beats his man. He gets to it first. And he gets to it in that way that as the ball is landing, he wins it and passes it, all with the same first touch. He plays it into Yunus Musa, who then opens up, carries it away, draws that free kick. If that free kick doesn't happen and should have been a yellow card but wasn't, uh, at least I don't think it was. No, it was not. If it wasn't a, a free kick, then I think he's in, he's got passing options, and I think we would have gotten a very good opportunity there. So you could see some of the defensive play on offer and how it was meant to work and that it occasionally did, and I agree with you, Yunus Musa, a big part of that, so too Tyler Adams, uh, who obviously stood out. I think Anthony Robinson's consistency is starting to stand out to me, that he will have those big moments, the big cross for the assist or a, a big finish, but he's just kind of regularly good, up and down, fights for everything, has big driving runs, wins balls, makes smart choices. I'm really coming to appreciate Anthony Robinson in this team. You know exactly what you're going to get from Anthony Robinson. And I think the quality may have degraded slightly from game one of this window to game two and from game two to game three as the even the cyborg's legs need a little oil once in a while. I think <laughs> I think I call them some sort of cyborg or robot in the last game because he does run a ton and he ran a lot tonight. The quality maybe wasn't always there on some of his deliveries. The 31st minute, he has a, a very poor cross that actually ends up going out for a corner because it, it's so far away from its initial target that it drifts all the way towards goal and Navas just can't take any chances and he tips it over the bar. It was not a, a flawless game from Jed. I know it was a flawless game from any U.S. player, but Taylor... I do agree with you in my appreciation for what Robinson does on that left side. And and I thought Christian Pulisic had as good of a game as he could, given that any time he got the ball, within five seconds he was getting cleared out. And and uh, credit to Moa Du for spotlighting that it seemed as though Costa Rican players, uh, Chacon in particular, were waiting for him to take that first touch. So then they had justification for kind of going all in on him and be like, oh, I went for the ball. See, it wasn't just malicious. But man, there were so many afters. He is going to have so many bruises. Uh, I'm really happy that he made it out of this game without a big injury that we know of, at least. And I thought he was kind of doing what he could to create. I thought when Gio Reyna came on, we saw just how exciting that attack can be. There's that great little ball between the lines for Pulisic to run onto. It's the one that he then, I can't remember if it's a shot or a pass, but it's the thing that ends up, I think, injuring Kaylor Navas. Um, But that little combination between those two made me pretty hyped to see what the U.S. looks like when we've got both of them starting and ideally a very good number nine, whomever that might end up being, because we still don't have much clarity on that front. Ricardo Pepe starting, Ricardo Pepe not doing a whole bunch in this game. Yeah, the the nine situation is just as murky as it has been. Ferreira yep. still is probably my go-to guy, but, I mean, it, it's it's still not very clear at this point. But to go back to Gio Reyna for a second, Taylor, if there's one thing that I'm most excited about for this U.S. team besides the fact that, you know, they, they qualified for the World Cup tonight, which, again, very cool, um, it, it's that Gio Reyna could be an every game starter for this team at that World Cup because, man, he is so good. Every single game he came off the bench in this window, I was very impressed with what he brought. He was trying to play balls in behind, and they didn't always come off tonight, uh, but but he was trying to progress play forward. He has a great touch uh, as he's moving up that right half space or the, the center wide space, Taylor, to steal your terminology, which I actually kind of quite like. Uh, he, <laughs> as he was moving up that, that space, great touch to evade pressure, to evade a Costa Rican player, and to, to move the ball upfield. He is just so silky smooth on the ball. And, and he is a real competitor out there. I love Gio Reyna. I love watching him play. And I am so ready to see him get a, a full start, a full 90 for this team. We didn't see it in this window. We haven't seen it for the U.S. I'm not even sure we saw it in that September game against El Salvador. I can't remember at this point. But getting to see more of Gio Reyna is certainly one USMNT thing that I am very, very much looking forward to later this year. Joe, I have a question about Gio Reyna, and if the answer is I don't know, then uh, we'll just have to watch more of it and see what we make of it. But we get the question a lot about why doesn't he play central? Could he play central? Should he be one of those midfield three? 
And it struck me watching him tonight, like he can do the defensive work and I think would if asked, but I don't know if I have any clear thoughts on the defensive side of his game. I don't know how much defense we've seen him play. Um, like, like fouls stand out to me, but I, I did watching him wonder if part of the reason we don't see him central more often is just because he doesn't have that defensive side, that defensive work rate that's going to be necessary to make that midfield function. Do you have any thoughts on Giorena's defensive capabilities? I don't know, Taylor, if he has that Mm -hmm. ability or not. I have similar questions that you do, and I'm not sure. Maybe I just need to watch more of him at Dortmund, but to be fair, there hasn't been much of Giorena to watch at Dortmund. Hopefully that changes in the last stretch of this season in the Bundesliga but I don't know the answer to that because we haven't seen it for the U.S. One of the things that Brother clearly values in that eight profile is mobility. There's a reason why Yunus Musa and Weston McKinney have become that starting pairing. McKinney's more mobile than Musa, but Musa is still physical and aggressive, especially when he's near the ball. And McKinney's rangy, and Adams is really rangy. So does Reyna fit in that exact profile? No, probably not. But can he bring you enough in that space? I think so. But I don't know for sure, largely because we just haven't seen it with the U.S. and we haven't seen it for Dortmund much because he hasn't been playing much this season. Joe, do you have any other uh, thoughts on individual performances or the overall U.S. performance from this game? Uh, I'm scrolling through my notes now. I don't think Kellen Acosta was all that good. I mentioned that. De La Torre, I don't think, brought a ton, but he's energetic and trying to push the ball Mm -hmm. forward, which is good, and I think it's something this game needed. I don't know that I have any other individual takes, Taylor. My only other individual thing I wanted to spotlight, I have a feeling Watke might uh, note this one, uh, and it transitions us, transitions us into a question we had from Twitter about uh, could we predict or like choose our ideal starting 11 for the U.S. for the World Cup with the roster as it stands right now. I would say Greg Berhalter, we will assume, uh, will be in charge of the U.S., and when we're talking about changes to the team, Joe, did you notice that there was a wardrobe change? Because it stood out to me, and it was one of the more intriguing things at halftime for me. Go on. What did I miss here? So I almost, like, it's it's not that interesting, but it simultaneously was to me. For the first half, he is wearing a white t-shirt, and I noticed it because I kept trying to figure out how the U.S. managed to have a 12th player standing on the sideline, uh, and it's because he was wearing the exact same color white shirt as the U.S., and so it often looked like they had 12 players, and when he comes out for the second half, I believe he's wearing navy blue, and my assumption is that that either somebody on the staff or maybe the fourth official said, hey, you blend in with the team way too much. You got you to gotta change a little bit. And so he did adjust his outfit. We will see if he adjusts his ideal starting 11. But, Joe, we're going to do that right now. It doesn't seem like it's going to be that tricky to run through this one. But we'll find out. Uh, Joe, why don't you take us through your 11? And uh, I will say where there is disagreement, I don't think there will be much. That was a pro-level transition, ladies and gentlemen, from, from adjustments to Brawler's wardrobe to adjustments to this lineup. Taylor, that's why they pay you the big bucks, man. That was great. Okay, goalkeeper. Matt Turner, for me, explained it earlier. I don't really need to go any more detail there. Mm-hmm. Taylor, do you want me to go all the way through, or are you going to interrupt me? What's, what's the vibe here? I mean, I, I, like we do this enough. We talk about this enough. I feel like we're pretty much on the same okay. page. So I'll, I'll interrupt just keep you going. when there's yeah. disagreement. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Matt Turner in goal. I would have Dest at right back and Jada Robinson Disagree. at left back. I don't. I don't. I'm I ignoring don't. that one because I know you're lying. <laughs> I would have Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman at center back starting in a must-win game. They've proven that and they've really cemented that role in, in those spots over the course of World Cup qualifying. Tyler Adams as the six. Musa and McKenney as those two eights. I am tempted to try Gio Reyna out in that spot and, and to drop Yunus Musa just to see what it would look like. And I'm, I'm not sure that would be the worst thing for the U.S. Maybe we'll see that over Nations League. But I would start Musa and McKenney if it was a must-win game today. I would start Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna, and I would start Jesus Ferreira as the nine in between those two players. Tim Weah, I think, is hard done here, and that's another reason I'm tempted to move Reyna into midfield. But I think I think that's what I'm going with. The MMA midfield with Pulisic and Reyna, and then uh, and then Jesus Ferreira as that nine. Taylor, any notes from you? Uh, n- no disagreement with you. Like I think I could go either way on Stefan versus Turner right now, um, and that is very much probably an emotional thing based on what have you done for me lately. So I guess, yeah, right now I lean Matt Turner. I would say, to, to your point about Wea versus Reyna, I-, I think there is a world in which it is almost ideal that that is, like, who should start there? They both bring a lot to the equation because... Number one, obviously, if somebody gets hurt, it's good to have the depth and it's not a huge drop-off. But I also think as we build towards Qatar, now that the U.S. is qualified, the focus then becomes 
obviously continuing to build the familiarity with the system, hopefully improving our ability on set pieces because I do not love how inconsistent or consistently not good we are at set pieces. So maybe that's a part of part of the plan. But I think it's also developing variety in the way we want to play. And I spotlight that right wing for a moment. Tim Weah can do many, many things. I think of him amongst those many, many things, as being a very quick, very clever attacker who you can use to exploit space. And we saw that in this window, that you can kind of get him in those isolated 1v1s, you shift everybody to one side, you create that big pocket of space, now you're like pinging a ball into it and you're letting him cook, essentially. I like that. I like the idea of having Timothy Way on the counterattack if we're going to try to sit in and then break through the channels. But if we want more, uh, like obviously Giorena can do that too, but if we want more sustained possession play, if we want uh, the right winger popping up on the left side to create an overload with Christian Pulisic, we saw that tonight. I think that is a thing Giorena can bring. And I think so much of the next few months are going to be about sort of developing a Swiss army knife, essentially when it comes to the way the U.S. Wants to, wants to play. So we have different looks for different opponents. We can adjust on the fly, and that familiarity doesn't drop. We're not trying something we haven't seen before. We're trying things that we've seen enough for everyone to be on the same page. And Berhalter even talked about that. Uh, Sam Stasekul had the, the quote, a, a couple different quotes from Berhalter in the press conference, but one of them, Joe, I'm guessing you might have it, was about how we've kind of we feel comfortable with the 433 it's what we've been working on but we might see experimentation as we build towards Qatar it's an interesting quote, Taylor, I think, because mm-hmm. it, it always intrigues me with these tactical things, right? You know me, and everybody else knows me at, at this point. I'm always intrigued by what the U.S. could do or different things they could try. They do seem pretty well set in this 4-3-3, and I'm not exactly chomping at the bit to deviate from it. I think there's areas to refine in that shape. But yeah, I mean, we could see different experiments in the back three that we've seen from the U.S. before that kind of just died midway through World Cup qualifying after that Honduras game. We could see something like that. We could we could potentially see a different midfield alignment instead of a 1-2 shape, which we've seen in that the 3-4-3 three, three with a 6 and two eights in front of the 6. We could theoretically see it flipped. I don't think that's all that likely with the personnel. I don't know exactly what Peralta's going to try to do, but I am, Taylor, really looking forward to Nations League. I mean, it's a great opportunity for the U.S. to try and get some more reps to potentially mess with things a little bit, change the recipe, see what happens, take good information, learn, learn what didn't work, what did work. I think that'll be a really valuable experience for this team after the, the club season for most of these guys has closed and they're really able to focus on preparing for the World Cup. Joe, I heard everything you said. I listened to it intently. I think the phrase is champing at the bit, and what that means is that you were incorrect on everything you said. You're I right. hope that's okay. You're I right. Hope that's, that, okay. that's such a weird thing. Taylor, you're absolutely right. First <laughs> it of all, really it's is. champing at the bit. Why is it not chomping at the bit? Like It should be. It, it, it totally should, should be. be chomping at the yeah. bit. I'm not saying yeah. that justifies me, but I'm just saying it justifies me. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer, Joe. And I apologize for being pedantic. No, I'm just no. trying to anticipate Twitter. It's the only way I'll learn, Taylor. Um, <laughs> um, so, Joe, we talked about our ideal 11s right now. There will obviously be changes. There's always that one, like late arrival who hadn't been there in qualifying but then is either eligible late in the Julian Green situation or somebody who just kind of hits the form at the right time, makes it into the squad. And I look forward to being able to continue to evaluate the pool and see who pops up and see who kind of catches fire or has the form that's needed and and plays their way into consideration because right now we've seen a lot of the same names, a lot of the same faces. We've got that consistency. We've qualified for the World Cup. Now it's about improving the squad, building it out more. And ultimately, it's about going to a World Cup, and that is where we are, Joe Lowry. To bring it all home, the USA is qualified. Life is good. Life is good. I I just got a flashback, Taylor, to sitting exactly where I'm sitting now, which means nothing to the listeners, or to you, really, because you can't see me. But sitting where I'm sitting now and us talking about World Cup qualifying, previewing that Mm -hmm. first window and just saying... You know, yep. the quality and what we see on the field is important. Like, it, it matters. That stuff matters, and it's a huge part of what Peralta is trying to do to change this team. And it's it's worked in some ways and, and really hasn't in other ways. We've seen progress at some things and, and frustratingly little progress in other areas. But, man, the most important thing was always, back in September, qualifying. And that job is done. And, and the U.S., again, always should have been favorites to qualify with the talent advantage they have over most other teams in CONCACAF. And they did it, right? They did it. It feels maybe a little strange to give a gold star to a team as good as this U.S. team is, but they deserve a gold star. Man, I'm giving out gold stars. They qualify for the World Cup. It is a a pretty darn cool thing. 
It is. And it's a strange bookend that we have this loss against Costa Rica where it feels like, ah, oh, that's disappointing. Like, we could have gotten our first win ever. It could have been totally different. Maybe we could have, like, uh, finished above Mexico. That would have been fun. But then you're right, Joe, to point out that at the, at the beginning of qualifying, we're all optimistic. We go on the road to El Salvador and it's nil-nil. Yeah. And the feeling there was not like, oh, man, we could have finished top of the group. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> like, like, this, <laughs> this could be bad. Uh, so I think to go from that point to this, um, it's just a nice – Reminder that, uh, yeah, we're going to the World Cup, and that's great. And I'm going to keep saying it over and over and over again because we are. And uh, in your faces, I don't know, I don't really want to be mean and gloat about somebody else not getting to go. (laughs) So instead I'll just say, everybody gets to go. It's going to be wonderful. Joe, we're going to be previewing the World Cup draw uh, and then, I guess, discussing the World Cup draw as it happens this Friday. We've got an episode of 101 coming out this week. There's an allocation disorder, obviously. Paul and Sam on location in Costa Rica. I'm sure they will share their thoughts and probably some... uh, analysis into what happened after the U.S. qualified and some of the celebrations that went on. So look forward to all that. But for now, Joe Lowry, thank you for previewing qualifying, breaking down every game of qualifying, talking about the the roster and the player pool. We've, we've talked about this team a lot, and we luckily get to continue to talk about them in an optimistic way. So thank you for this evening, and thank you for all the conversations leading up to this evening. What a ride, Taylor. Thank you for having yeah, me and for making me a part of this. It's been so much fun, even even in the games where the games weren't fun. And in the aftermath, it really wasn't yeah. all that fun to think about this team. It's been a blast going through and doing these shows with you. 14 deep dive USMNT review shows. That's pretty cool. And I'm really proud of the work that we've done. And it's been a blast yeah, doing this with you. More to come, my friend. Listeners, more to come. But thank you all so much for listening this evening. We'll talk to you all again very soon. And we're going to the World Cup. <laughs>